Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Morning, North Sound. Great to see you all this morning. So glad you chose to worship with us today. My thanks to Sheila for leading and uh, for Pastor Robin and for Christy for helping us this morning. We uh, have a, a, a weekend away for Casey and for Chris, who usually are leading uh, from the front and, uh, and from the piano, and uh, they are in Leavenworth today, so uh, we wish them the best as they have uh, a little time away. Well, I have a confession to make this morning. It's awfully quiet in here. Uh, <laughs> Oh, <laughs> good. What was good that? Good for the soul, but not good for your legal rights. Yes. Thank you, counselor. Uh, <laughs> he said good for the soul, but not good for your legal rights. So uh, Craig is a public defender. Actually, Craig's wife is uh, the one for whom we're having the service next week, and we certainly invite you to join us uh, for that. Uh, there, was a, uh, there was a pastor who noticed, uh, who was visiting a, another church, and he noticed in the middle of the service, the sermon, that people were getting kind of restless. And uh, the pastor, in the, in, noticing that people were getting restless, said what I just did. He said, I have a confession to make. And he got everybody's attention immediately. And, uh, and then when he got everybody's attention, he said, sometimes I like to find myself in the arms of another woman he still had their attention, and then he said, my, my mother. <laughs> so when, this, <clears throat> when the pastor who was visiting got home, uh, he had noticed the same thing happening when he was preaching, and so he thought he would try the same thing, and he said, I have a confession to make. And just like in the other church, it went completely quiet. And then he said, sometimes I like to find myself in the arms of another woman. And again, it was very, very quiet. The problem was that the preacher couldn't remember what the next line was. Uh, so he eventually said, but for the life of me, I can't remember her name. <laughs> oh. Ooh. So <clears throat> my confession is that yesterday there were a group of us who went to uh, the Support 7 uh, fundraiser. Um, it was at the Community Life Center in Linwood. And uh, <clears throat> you need to know I have a Triumph Bonneville motorcycle sitting at home in the garage. And when we got there, um, I noticed that they had an auction uh, for items. And um, I also noticed because the Support 7 group supports our police and fire, they show up with chaplains and a van uh, when there's an emergency and, uh, and are involved in supporting them. And this was a fundraiser to help them with their work. And so um, I noticed that there was a motorcycle there. It looked like a police motorcycle. And so I, uh, I, I didn't really pay much attention to it until I discovered that it was one of the auction items. Um, so, and it was in really, really good, did I mention it was in really good shape? <laughs> and uh, so um, there was a list of people that were writing their name down and an amount of money that they were going to be willing to spend for the auction for a, good, for a really good cause. <laughs> did I mention that as well, a really good cause? And so uh, 
by the end of the evening, it somehow, somehow my name was at the top of the list. I, I'm not quite sure how that happened, and so I, I, drove, I drove home a motorcycle from the event that I had no intention of driving home with a motorcycle. And could you please pray for my marriage? Um, <laughs> Okay, well, let's get into the Bible quickly, shall we? Love one another, I think, is one of the passages that we need to look at. So um, we are doing a series from 1 Thessalonians. Last week, we spent an entire half hour on uh, one verse, and now we've got, what is it, Jack, about eight verses? So, Jack, can you, you're good at spreadsheets. Can you help me on the math See, half hour on one verse, eight verses. Is that like four hours? Something? Is that something like that? Okay. So anyway, uh, we are going to delve into the scripture, and I want to encourage you to uh, to open your Bibles or your phones or whatever you use, and to follow along with me because this whole series. Uh, from now until the end of June is going to be from 1 Thessalonians. We're going to try to dive kind of deep in it, and so I want to encourage you to follow along as we move through this together. So the first thing I would like you to notice in our passage is something about the nature of prayer. Paul writes in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Paul begins this letter with a prayer and the prayer is a special one. It reminds us, as he talks about thanksgiving, remembering them in prayer, it reminds us that um, when we learn to pray, many of us as children, we did so with petition, okay? We ask God for stuff. So when we, um, when we teach our kids and our grandkids about prayer, we kind of teach them to pray for things, right? Now I lay me down to sleep, that sort of thing. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. Those kinds of things, we, we learn that you pray and you ask things from God, but prayer has so much more to it. We use, in a staff meeting and with the elders, we use a little device um, that we call ACTS, A-C-T-S. And ACTS is a, a way of going into prayer that helps us to remember that there's more to prayer than simply asking God for things. So we typically have one elder or one pastor take on adoration, and so they will pray that to God, and then someone will take on confession. Generally, whoever has the most to confess uh, takes on confession. And then thanksgiving, uh, and then supplication. Supplication is uh, back to intercession or petition. And we do that to kind of force ourselves into an understanding that prayer is so much broader than simply asking for things from God. One of the things that I want to comment on here is that in his prayer, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Thanksgiving in prayer. Did you know that there is real power in thanksgiving, in giving gratitude? Harvard Health published an article a couple of years ago in August of 2021 called Giving Thanks Can Make You Happier. They said, in positive psychology research, gratitude is strongly and consistently associated with greater happiness, 
Gratitude helps people feel more positive emotions, relish good experiences, improve their health, deal with adversity, and build strong relationships. And they offered some ways to work into your life the expression of gratitude. One of them is to write a thank you note to someone. Someone that has done something for you or has blessed you in some way, write them a note. It'll probably do more for you than it will for the person that receives it, although both will be blessed. Thank you someone mentally. You don't even have to talk to them, but in your heart you can be thankful for someone. Count your blessings. If you know it, say it with me. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Yeah, it's wonderful. And then they suggest praying, as we do with Acts, praying together in thanksgiving, and then also in meditation to work in thanksgiving. Some of you may remember the rest of the story with Paul Harvey. Do you remember, uh, do you remember Paul Harvey and the rest of the story on the radio? And uh, he told a story about gratitude. He said, it's gratitude that prompted an old man to visit an old broken pier on the eastern seacoast of Florida. Every Friday night until his death in 1973, he would return, walking slowly and slightly stooped with a large bucket of shrimp. The seagulls would flock to this old man, and he would feed them from his bucket. Many years before, in October 1942, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker was on a mission in a B-17 to deliver an important message to General Douglas MacArthur in New Guinea. But there was an unexpected detour when the flying fortress ran dangerously low on fuel. They were out of radio communication distance in the Pacific, and they had to ditch their airplane in the ocean. And for nearly a month, Eddie Rickenbacker and his Colleagues were in a raft floating there in the Pacific. Many sleepless nights recoiling as giant sharks would come and nudge the raft. The largest raft was nine by five and the biggest shark about 10 feet long. But of all their enemies in the sea, the one that proved most formidable was hunger. But a miracle occurred and in Captain Eddie's own words, Cherry, that is the B-17 pilot, Captain William Cherry, read the service that afternoon. The service would probably, from a prayer book, probably the Book of Common Prayer, read the afternoon prayer. And then they finished with a prayer for deliverance and a hymn of praise. There was some talk, but it tapered off in the oppressive heat. And he says, with my hat pulled down, and uh, to cover my eyes to keep out some of the glare, I dozed off. Now, in Captain Rickenbacker's own words, he says, something landed on my head. I knew it was a seagull. I don't know how I knew. I just knew. Everyone else knew, too. No one said a word, but peering out from under my hat brim, without moving my head, I could see the expression on their faces. They were staring at the gull. The gull meant food, if I could catch it. And the rest, as they say, is history. Captain Eddie caught the gull. Its flesh was eaten. Its insides were used as bait to catch fish. The survivors were sustained. Their hopes were renewed because a lone seagull, uncharacteristically hundreds of miles from land, offered itself as a sacrifice and 
you know, of course, that Captain Eddie made it. And you also know that he never forgot, because every Friday evening about sunset on a lonely stretch along the eastern Florida seacoast, you could see an old man walking, white-haired, bushy-eyebrowed, slightly bent, his bucket filled with shrimp to feed the gulls, to remember the one which a long day past gave itself without a struggle like manna in the wilderness. And remember what Paul Harvey would say, and that is the rest of the story. Yeah. Gratitude, what a difference it makes in our lives. The second thing we notice in our passage is something about faith, hope, and love. Verse 3, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> if I were to ask you, where do you find faith, hope, and love together in the Scripture, we would say 1 Corinthians 13. But these are three abide, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, right? But here we have it, the same three Christian virtues together in this passage in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, in 1 Thessalonians, verse 3. We also see the three of them together in Hebrews 10 and in 1 Peter uh, 1. We could unpack each of these. We could do a sermon on each of faith, hope, and love. And in fact, during Advent season, we often do that. We spend time talking about each one of those. But what I want to suggest is that someone made a comment that I think John has on the screen for us. They said how these three work together, faith, hope, and love. They said, patient hope, which accompanies active faith and laboring together in love. So our hope accompanies our faith, and together we work in love. 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians encourages hope to the recognition that Jesus will return. We live in the present. We have challenges in the present, but we look forward to one day when those challenges will be over, when we have a future. Faith is more, however, than an articulation of belief, but it's also about living with a Christian worldview. Have you ever thought about how much having a Christian worldview affects our lives? We're, we're a very different people because we have a Christian worldview and not a secular worldview. Recently, I uh, saw a review of a, of a book by a neurosurgeon called Admissions, and it was about his career as a neurosurgeon, and I... I um, I should have a I should have a a big account at Amazon because I, I I tap into them so often. But um, I got this book and I read it and it was a fascinating book. He talked about his work in neurosurgery, both in London, modern hospital, but also in Nepal, where there was very little to work with. And I really enjoyed the book. But as I got to the end, I realized, oh my goodness, this guy is making a fatal error. And the fatal error is that somehow, because he is a scientist, a neurosurgeon, he can feel like he is an expert on those things over which he has no greater expertise than any one of us. I want you to hear what he said. He said, I do not believe in an afterlife. 
I'm a neurosurgeon. I know everything I am, everything I think and feel, consciously or unconsciously, is the electrochemical activity of my billions of brain cells joined together with a near infinite number of synapses. When my brain dies, I will die. I am uh, and I am an transcendent electrochemical dance. I am a transcendent electrochemical dance. Dr. Marsh misses the beauty and the wonder of a Christian worldview, of what we call metaphysics or beyond physics. Life is so much more, our lives are so much more than the sum of our parts. We have a spirit. We are a living soul. Peter Biles writes this. He says, C.S. Lewis was perhaps the most eloquent author of his time who wrote across multiple genres on the tyranny of scientism in defense of a transcendent moral order. Along with other writers like G.K. Chesterton, John Milton, Dante, Lewis championed the sacredness of the human person and the need for a holistic understanding of the world that included the spiritual. Without the guardians of morality and a defense of rationality in the classic sense, Lewis argued that technology and science would end up destroying human life and relationships. It would lead to what he called the abolition of man. So we see in this letter that Paul writes to the American church of the very real danger of technology and science going off the rails. And if you have a news feed at all on the internet, you will see the discussion of AI and the, the future of artificial intelligence and how it may affect our lives for better or for worse. There are very real dangers with moving ahead with technology, with this materialism, this scientism, doing it because we have the technical ability to do it, and the, the morality and the rootedness that helps us to make the best decisions for we as a human race for the future. I love the way the Alpha Course encourages those who are not a part of the faith to engage those who are a part of secularism to say, as Alpha does, isn't there more to life than this? Is there more to life than this? And the answer, of course, is yes. For followers of Jesus, our hope in the future and our active faith in the present leads to acts of love to those around us. The third thing I want to suggest from our text is something about the Holy Spirit and power. For we know, brothers, loved by God, verse 4, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power. And in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. There is no question here in the New Testament, especially as we look at the book of Acts, we see that each new iteration of the gospel, kind of like a, a stone being thrown into a pond and the ripples moving out, that each new iteration of the gospel tended to have signs and wonders, miracles that took place as a result. One of the things that is sort of disturbing to me is that in North America, we tend not to see miracles like they do today around the world. 
I was talking to someone between services. We were talking about the Muslim world and the number of Muslim people who are coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ because of a miraculous revelation in a dream or a vision of who Jesus is. Dr. Finney in India tells us about their work in villages and how people come into a relationship with Christ because of a, a miracle that they see in the, in the midst of them, a healing that takes place that draws them to the living God. I don't know why we don't see more here. My suspicion is it has to do with the overwhelming secularism and materialism, in, which is the environment in which we live. It's the, it's the water, if you were, in which we swim and also perhaps the fact that we have it so good. Most of our needs are met for most of us. Uh, most of our physical needs are cared for by high-quality physicians and medical centers. Maybe part of the problem is we don't perceive that vital need that we have. But one thing that is wonderful is that still in our time and in our place, we see the wonder of the power of the Holy Spirit in so many ways in the church, in our lives, in the world. And we may not see the miraculous in the same sense that we do overseas, but every time we baptize a new Christian, God is at work in that life. The fourth thing I want to suggest from our text is in verse 6, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Paul also conveyed this to the church in Corinth when he said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We may think for a moment that Paul was being egotistical, saying to them, follow me as I follow Christ. But the fact of the matter is, is that we know how discipleship takes place. We know the nature of Christian growth. And if I had my way, I, I would love for all of us, virtually all of us here today, to be both a mentor and a mentee, to be a mentee to those who have been uh, along the way and can mentor us into further into the faith and looking like Jesus Christ, but also for us to look at those who are newer in the faith and to come alongside them. From time to time, we talk about discipleship at North Sound Church, and our desire is to create a program of mentorship because we think it's so critical to discipleship. But the problem is that it can't be done artificially. You really can't impose mentorship. It has to be uh, from the grassroots with relationships that work. And so my encouragement to you is to seek out a mentor and to seek out someone that you can help in the journey. Last week I mentioned C.S. Lewis's comment, consider me to be a patient in the same hospital who having been admitted a little earlier may be able to offer some advice. To me that's a picture of the church and we need to engage with those who have been admitted a little bit earlier and to help those who are coming behind us. The sixth thing I want to mention is that we are to find joy in affliction. For you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I have to tell you, this is a hard saying. It's a hard saying. As your pastor, I know that many of you are going through times of affliction, very difficult times. And it feels almost inappropriate for me to say, well, you should have joy in the midst of 
the affliction that you're going through. It's a hard saying. But Paul, having put it here, is a something that we see in the midst of other scriptures as well. Paul, again, in Romans chapter 5, says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Galatians 5, he talks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit living in our lives And the second one he mentions after love is joy, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Last Monday, Barb was watching Thomas. He's five years old, and Thomas will be going to kindergarten in the fall, and so Barb is enjoying the time that she has with him before kindergarten. And on Monday, the little guy got sick, and he was throwing up, I don't know how many times during the course of the day, and I remember looking into the bathroom and seeing Barb kind of cradling the, the little guy, comforting him because his tummy was so upset. And, uh, what amazes me about kids, though, is how quick they bounce back, right? They're just like, if I throw up, it's a big deal. Uh, they throw up, it's like, it's, it, it's nothing, But anyway, we got through the day okay. Barb got through the day okay, and uh, Thomas got picked up. And then Tuesday night, 24 hours later, we were um, watching something on television, and we had to stop the program because we had stopped it so many times already for Barb running to the bathroom. And so it was like, oh, great, we got the crud from Thomas, our five-year-old. And then, um, you know, I felt, I felt bad for her, but it wasn't until the middle of the night when it started for me, and I'm up, you know, back and forth. And uh, I, I have to tell you, this is my second confession this morning. I'm not very good when I'm sick. Um, when I get sick, I feel sorry for myself. Uh, I don't know if that's common to men, ladies, but... Uh, I, get, I get sorry for myself. And uh, at times in our marriage, Barb has come into the bedroom, opened the drapes, turned on the lights, and said, get out of bed, get up, shave, and shower, and you'll feel better. Um, it's kind of the, the treatment um, for the, yeah. So it's all too easy for me to mope. Um, But God calls for something different. Not only are we not to be victims, but we need to find joy in the midst of circumstances as hard, as hard as that may be, and I know it's hard. A number of years ago, I met Dr. Ernie Franz, an emergency room physician, and I met him at the Naval Base, Naval Base Kitsap Banger. He was doing a what's called a general military training, a GMT. If you're in the military, there are courses that you have to go through, and this was one that the sailors were called to go through. It was on alcohol and alcohol abuse, and he was selected because of what, to be a speaker to the sailors because of what happened to him. He was an emergency room physician. He was riding his bike on Bainbridge Island when a young man, 19 years of age, who was drunk, fully inebriated, um, pulled over on the side of the road where he was riding his bike and hit him, but not only hit him, but dragged him for 450 feet. Now, 
I, I, when, I, when there are really big distances, small distances, I tend to think of inches or, you know, a ruler, 12, 12 inches. Big distances, I tend to think of football fields. Do you know 450 feet is a football field and another half a football field? That's how far he was dragged. This young man was, was distraught because his girlfriend had left him and he had taken to drinking to solve the problem, make him feel better, and this was the result. He was taken, Dr. Franz was taken to Harborview. They worked on him at Harborview and they were not able to restore all of his functions and it cost him his ability to work, his job, his ability to serve as an emergency room physician. In his talk to the sailors, warning them about what can happen if you drink alcohol to excess and drive, there was something about what he was saying that suggested to me there was more to the story and there was more to his life. And so I went up to him afterwards. I was in uniform and, and I, you know, identifiable as a chaplain. And I said, I asked him about a spiritual piece to the story. And it turned out that he was a follower of Jesus, as I had suspected. And he said this to me. He said that when he was processing this terrible event, he had a vision of Jesus picking up his crumpled body and saying, I'm so sorry this happened to you. And he said at that point he had a choice, and the choice was either to become bitter or not. And he recognized that most folks don't like being around people whose personality is formed by bitterness, and so he chose to serve, and so he gives talks and has influenced the lives of I don't know how many sailors, probably hundreds there that day at the Navy base. So I had Ernie, some of you may remember, 10, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, something like that, I had Ernie share his story here at North Sound. Some of you may remember. But this week, as I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking about Ernie, I went online and, and Google to try to find out what was happening in his life. And lo and behold, I discovered that he had gotten, after our time together, gotten involved in Nehemiah International as a physician with a hospital that they have in Africa, in Kenya. And when I saw the Nehemiah team, then another name popped up, the name John Kruger. And I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, and the synapses began to fire, and I realized that John and Jean have been a part of Nehemiah ministry for 20 years or something, 25 years, and um, the money that we raised um, in excess of $50,000 for Ukraine uh, in the last year because of the war went to the Nehemiah Center in Ukraine. And and Dr. Franz connected with the Nehemiah Center, John Kruger, uh, John and Jean, and their work uh, in that way. Somehow, he figured out in the midst of his affliction to be able to serve with joy. Finally, this morning, the power of the gospel, verse 7. 
So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So that we need not say anything, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I don't know how many people there were in the church there in Thessalonica, but they made quite an impact. If you think about the geography of Greece and the, what happened in the New Testament, uh, Paul went on his missionary journey, second missionary journey, uh, into um, Ephesus, or excuse me, into Asia Minor, uh, and then over into Greece where he had previously been on the first missionary journey where he heard the Macedonian call. If you don't let Macedonia and Achaia sort of throw you off, it's just two sections of Greece. The northern section is Macedonia, the southern section is Achaia. Uh, Thessalonica is in the northern section of Macedonia. Corinth and Athens are in the southern part. And so the reputation of the church had already gone out from Thessalonica, now with church planting efforts and reaching out into Corinth and beyond. So many of the first Christians were Jewish. You remember that how Paul had a church strength church planting strategy, he would go to uh, a synagogue in a, in a town, city, and he would share the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, and those that were interested in learning more would respond, and typically what happened is some would be interested in learning more, others would think he was peddling heresy and would throw him out of the synagogue, but with the other group they would begin to start a church. But in this case, in Thessalonica, it appears that they were not Jews because they were worshippers of idols, as our text suggests, and that wouldn't have been the case for, uh, for Jewish people. What we find here is that they got good saved, these people in Thessalonica. Their salvation wasn't just a matter of saying a few words and agreeing with something, but their lives were changed. We call that getting good saved in the mission world. They got good saved and experienced such a profound change that the, the word spread. They were a missionary church. Here at North Sound, we planted the church in 2003-2004, had our grand opening in 2004. And uh, right away at the very beginning of the church, even though we were extremely small, we wanted to pay it forward. We had been sponsored by North Shore Church, and so immediately we got involved in sponsoring a church in Duval um, that was also planting at the same time we were. And then that financial giving has continued right up to this moment, both churches that are like us, uh, as well as Anglican churches. I'll share a little bit more about that in just a moment. But what, what we felt like we need to do as people whose lives have been transformed by the gospel is to spread that forward. And what normally happens happens is a congregation takes 30 people from the church, uh, brings them half an hour away, and finds a building and starts a new church, and that's typically the way church planting works in America. But we asked ourselves around about 2012 when we started to think about, okay, we're supporting all these churches financially, but what have we done together here out of North Sound Church? And so we asked ourselves the question, maybe we should go about this differently. And we put some smart people together in a room and talked about this, and we decided that we needed to ask the question, what kind of church does Edmonds need 
that it doesn't have. And so we talked about that, and we did some work, and we realized that within a five-mile radius, there were 16,000 people who would prefer to worship liturgically. Liturgically, think Lutheran, think Roman Catholic, okay? And, and we recognized that the liturgical churches had nowhere near that number, but also, and perhaps just as important, was the fact that the liturgical churches that were here had gone so far left theologically that they had taken themselves away from the constituency that were, were orthodox, conservative followers of theology that came to us down through the ages. And so we looked at this and we said, our, our, our community needs a church that has orthodox theology that is consistent theology that's historic with the ancient church. And we also want to have an opportunity to worship liturgically to meet the needs of these people. What we also discovered was that there were a lot of young people who had gotten burned out on evangelical churches, uh, particularly evangelical megachurches, but evangelical churches in general, and they wanted something different. And in the Anglican setting, the Eucharist or the communion is the highlight of the service. It isn't the pastor or the sermon, that sort of thing. So all of which is to say we had a church planter on staff, Ryan Brotherton, and we began to talk to Ryan about what God was doing in his life, and he had met an Anglican priest uh, at Northwest University and began that Canterbury journey himself. I met with Todd Hunter, who had succeeded John Wimber as the leader of the Vineyard Movement and was now an Anglican bishop, and I ran the idea of us planting a church on top of us. And to make a long story short, Ryan was ordained as an Anglican priest. We planted Holy Trinity Edmonds on top of us. They have grown so successfully. They are now, in the pictures you see, they are now probably the largest church in the Diocese of Cascadia in the Anglican Church of North America. Here is a festival Eucharist. You see all the, the folks in the front in their vestments. Um, and, uh, and we continue to partner with them in church planting. So the next church we planted was All Saints Church in Everett. And just this week, Ryan and I have been talking about the next ones and the elders of North Sound on your behalf are positive and encouraging towards us continuing this kind of journey. Here's the deal. <clears throat> Ryan told me this week when I asked him about how they are doing and their history. They started in 2014. It's 2023, nine years. They have had 59 baptisms at Holy Trinity Edmonds. And I share that with you because you share in those 59 baptisms. If we hadn't been faithful to God back then in planting a church that was out of the ordinary, an unusual way of doing it, we wouldn't have seen this effort for the kingdom in the way that it was seen. Church planting involves giving people and money away. It's a strange thing for a church to do, right? Give people and money away, not just bring them in yourself. Why do we do this? Well, we do it because our lives have been profoundly changed by the good news of Jesus Christ. And we don't just wait for his appearing, but in the meantime, we're called to do something. We're called to bring with us into his kingdom as many people as we can. We also believe 
in the understanding of the kingdom of God and the values of the kingdom of God. And so as a church, we partner with those community organizations that we believe are making a difference, that are working for the common good, that are seeing the values of the kingdom lived out in our community, even if they're not Christian organizations, but they're working for the good, for the values that we would see in the kingdom. So last night, Support 7, and the fact that they're involved in coming alongside people who, where the police have come or the fire have come to their home, they've lost a loved one, their house has burned down, and they provide chaplains and, and a, uh, an airporter with resources and a restroom so the police and the fire have a place to, to, to rest if they need to, or families that are involved in the emergency can get help. We support the foundation for Edmond School District because the kingdom of God would want little children to be fed and have their needs met. We work with Vision House because we believe that women in distress in difficult situations need to be able to get on their feet. I can go on and on and on about all of the folks that we're involved with as a church. The reason we do that is because we see these as extensions of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Well, it's a place where, according to the prayer that Robin led us in earlier, it's a place where God's will is done here on earth as it is in heaven. Just before COVID, we surveyed you all, and I was amazed to find that you all are involved at that time in over 100, with 100 organizations that are making a difference in our community. That's exactly what the gospel calls for. Tom Wright wrote a book uh, recently called The Day the Revolution Began. And, and Tom, in his book, reminds us that we don't just get saved, commit our lives to Jesus, get baptized, and then hang on till Jesus comes and try not to sin too much. That, that, that's not the picture that we have. The picture we have is of people whose lives have been transformed and they engage now. They engage now in kingdom work. This is how he ends his book. <clears throat> he said, The Creator calls you to a genuine humanness at last, calls and equips you to bear and reflect his image. Celebrate the revolution that happened once for all when the power of love overcame the love of power. And the power of love overcame the love of power. And the power of that same love, in the power of that same love, join the revolution here and now. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you this morning for your word, a lamp to our feet, a light to our pathway. I pray, Lord, that you would help us. Whatever season of life we may be in, whatever afflictions we may be bearing, to recognize that you have called us and that we have the wonderful joy of serving your kingdom. And for that, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.